0: Chapter thirty nine, part two of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, volume two, by Moncure Conway. Chapter thirty nine, part two. The German troops did not behave well in Pont-à-Mousson. In other towns they had been unable to obtain anything, and on arriving here they rushed to the tobacco shops and helped themselves, in many cases without paying, and in some breaking the glass over the tobacco. They felt that they had a right to do this, tobacco in France being a government monopoly. But very little tobacco had been left, and nothing to eat. In our hotel was a cellar of Moselle wine, but not an atom of food, and as the German settlers had been held up by a French force, Halstead and I had to pass thirty hours without even a morsel of bread. We breakfasted, dined, and supped on wine. One evening, to our joy, a French beer-saloon opened. We hastened to it, and took several courses of bock. In payment I handed the proprietor a napoleon. He immediately folded up the gold in a bit of paper and gave it to a woman who disappeared. When at length I asked for my change, the saloon-keeper angrily declared that I had given him only a franc, and opened his drawer to show that no gold was in it. Just because I am French and alone, and you surrounded by friends, you wish to impose on me. I concluded to lose my francs rather than make a fuss, and left. We explored what few shops were open with the hope of finding sardines or olives. In vain. We had to live on sparkling moselle, How poor it had become beside beer! Were not four bucks worth a Napoleon? So we asked ourselves in reconsidering a resolution to withhold our patronage from that saloon-keeper. The August sun melted me to forgiveness. As soon as I entered the saloon the old man rushed at me from behind his bar, raised his hands, put them on my shoulders, and said, "'I have not slept, because in making up accounts last night I found your Louis. Monsieur, it was genteel of you to leave it instead of getting me into trouble with my enemies. The old man, as he handed me the Napoleon, actually shed tears. It was forenoon, and no other person was present. He said, Do you need anything to eat? I told him that we were starving. Then, messieurs, if you cross the bridge at one o'clock this day, turn to your right at the other end, go on till you come to the second gate, enter, and walk into the house. You will find something to eat." We remembered the offer of food at the King's headquarters in case of need, but felt shy about it, and though warned against snares, we made our way half a mile out of town to the house indicated. He and his wife received us with effusion, and there was set before us a dinner of lamb chops and vegetables, which I always remember as the most delicious meal I ever tasted in my life. Thirty hours of starvation can turn chops to terrapin, and onions to canvas ducks, and claret to nectar nor could we induce these two grateful people to receive money for a dinner worth to us at the moment so much more than the restored nineteen francs. In the late afternoon, however, when we took our coffee at their saloon in town, I laid down a Napoleon and said, "'This time, monsieur, I refuse to receive any change.' The old man and his wife bowed low, and their smile amid the terrors surrounding them was cheaply purchased." The king drove rapidly into pont a in a plain open French foiture, preceded by an escort bearing drawn swords. The soldiers crowding the streets gave loud cheers, and Moltke saluted. Bismarck had previously entered the town incognito, but now walked on the street. I was in a chocolate shop, when in it the word was caught from tongue to tongue, Bismarck! All crowded to the door, and sure enough there was the great tall man apparently taking notice of nothing. Although the delay of the settlers had not prevented the soldiers from having their rations, it had withheld the supply of tobacco. I inquired of an officer at our quarters the reason for the unusual delay in that town. He replied that it was because no army could be sent into a field of battle without plenty of tobacco. Thus the great plant, which had played so important a part in the political history of America, England, and France, was still determining events. About four miles beyond the bridge there is a superb hill crowned with a picturesque ruin. Halstead and I had gone up there with a number of German officers who were taking a military view of the country. A troop of soldiers was stationed on the height, which commanded a view of the Moselle up and down for a great distance, and an officer near me spoke of that river as the natural boundary of Germany. At pont a mousson I strolled into the old church, St. Martin's. A few women were there who did not lift their heads from their prayers. I gazed upon a fine old window representing princely St. Martin on his steed, dividing his cloak with his sword to give half to the beggar. The solemn quiet was invaded but faintly by martial sounds, and I sat dreaming of the happy era when swords shall be beaten into scissors, and needles to make cloaks for the shivering. One day, when I was in a shop, a German soldier entered and managed to indicate that he wanted a pocket-knife. The price was named. He put down a few Gröschen, much less than the price, and went off. "'This is the way we are robbed,' said the woman at the counter, bursting into tears. I told her I thought the difficulty had been that she had not been understood, and that it would be well to study the German coinage. The husband who had just entered said to me, "'You seem to belong to some other country.' I explained that I was there as a neutral to write an account of the events. Ah! he replied, it may be well we should know this. Any little turn of affairs might bring about wild scenes in Pont-à-Mousson, and if any riot should occur you had better come to my house, and my wife and I will see that you are safe. On the day of the Virgin Mary, August 15, there was the Fête, as usual. But on the 17th a great number of peasants came into the town— and had the Battle of Gravelotte turned out differently, the wild scenes might have occurred. Halstead and I were now supplied with food, but suffering from the tobacco famine. While strolling on the bridge we saw the first sutler wagon entering the town, ran to it, and bought each a bundle of a hundred cigars. Hurrying back in triumph to deposit our treasures in our room, we met four soldiers, who incontinently rushed upon us, snatched both bundles of cigars, and took to their heels. We had to conclude that the cigars were bad, also a valuable contribution by us to the German cause, but found it more consoling that the tobacco famine was at an end. We had been assigned a room over a barber's shop, previously occupied by an English correspondent who had left English papers, the only ones I had seen for a fortnight. Having time on our hands we resolved to visit again the pont Amousson castle on its height, Taking our lunch we walked to the summit, where we were amazed to find absolute solitude. We at once felt it imprudent to venture so far from the protection of the army, and turned to go away. Just then from behind the ruin came forth a huge man in laborer's blouse, who had menace in his eye and a sickle in his hand. Presently two other men, one armed in the same way, advanced, and stood squarely across our paths. One of them spoke German and asked, "'Are you Germans?' "'No,' I answered in French, "'we are Americans.' We now saw a fatal steel-like look in the eyes of these men. Their voices trembled. One of them held a little piece of a German paper in his hand, very dirty, and evidently picked from the ground. He held it in one hand, his other being kept behind his back. "'Will you please,' he said to me in French, "'read me what is on this paper?' I took the paper and stumbled along with the German text. I fear I hardly did the instructions of my old teacher justice in my pronunciations. We showed our passports, but there was no French visa on either, and one of them remarked that it was easy to get passports in any land. The man who talked German observed closely the little bundle under my arm. It was our luncheon which I had wrapped in a copy of the London Sunday Times found in our room, and I placed it in his hands. He examined the paper carefully, tried to spell out the words. His countenance lost some of its darkness, and he said to his comrades, "'They are not Germans.' Thereon they all moved about forty feet behind a wall of the ruin, perhaps for consultation. We needed no consultation for retreat, and when we reached the edge of the hill saw the men emerge with three sickles instead of the previous two. Instead of going along the road we entered into a field thick with tall hop-vines, which were friendly enough to two unarmed journalists. When we re-entered Pont-à-Mousson, there were terrible scenes. Wounded men were pouring in from the front, where there had been a sharp engagement. Bismarck had told us that when it was known that a battle was to occur he would notify us, and about one o'clock in the night a messenger knocked at our door and informed us that the army was advancing toward Vionville, where there had been fighting. We at once found our telegraph-buggy, but at the tail of the vast great army it moved too slowly, and we concluded to walk. After a substantial meal at a peasant's house on the roadside, we travelled on till we came to the foot of a range of low hills with thick woods, the Bois des Ognons. It was hardly daybreak, but the thunder of cannon suddenly began, rolling up as if from the interior of the hills. Passing through the village of Gers twelve miles from Pont-à-Mousson to the high plain beyond, we reached the fields strewn with bodies, some not yet dead, the battlefield of Vionville. Seeing on a particular hill the king and his cabinet, we approached them. Looking thence over the vale, I saw against the horizon a village of bright houses gathered around a pretty steeple, and all the bright sky dotted with white fleecy clouds, as if at some fete numberless little balloons were sent up. We could even hear music, and on the meadows beneath the garden terraces of Gravelotte, multitudes seem to be dancing. Ah, the field-glass reveals another picture. The snow-white balloons are bursting shells. The music is ground out of the revolving mitrailleuse, and on the meadows beneath is the dance of death. Forever filing out of the Bois des Oignons is an interminable German line crawling like some huge black snake toward the high village but in its farther part are many gaps. Only segments of the serpent are struggling up the terraces. And how slowly! The chieftains sit near us on their horses, nearly a score. Among them I recognized the king, von Moltke, Bismarck, Prince Adelbert, the king's brother, adjutant Kransky, and the American General Sheridan. Every now and then a messenger from the front rides up furiously and hands a paper to von Moltke, who looks like a fleshless, death's-head beside the florid king. Von Moltke passes the new missive unopened to the king, who opens it and formally glances at it, then returns it, really unread, to von Moltke. The great commander reads it and makes a suggestion to the king, who declares that opinion to be his own, and the messenger rides off swiftly with it. A company of cavalry dashes up from behind, and in passing salutes the king and his field-cabinet. One of them, by a wave of his hand, exchanges a special salute with Bismarck. It is his son. Several of the grand personages dismounted, among them Prince Adelbert, who spoke pleasantly to me, and dotted on the back of my passport the positions of the various corps at the front. Bismarck sheltered himself from the burning sun for a time under a picket tent then came from some mysterious region behind us, as if sprung from the earth, an army that marched forward only some thirty yards on our left, all singing The Watch on the Rhine. Afterwards we saw many of their foremost men in death-agonies on the ground, while still behind us were advancing and singing their comrades, who a little farther on must suffer the same fate. The mounted commanders had sat almost still as statues, but in the late afternoon there was a sensation among them—excitement, rapid words. The French had abandoned Gravalotte for a farther ridge. Not long after the royal party dashed off towards Raisonville, a village on our left near Gravalotte. Halstead and I started to walk that way, but gave it up after a time, and moved about the battlefield of the previous day, Mar-la-Tour and Vionville. Dusk had begun to fall, and it became a serious concern where we could get food, and where lay our weary heads. At that moment I saw a young man without uniform seated on a stone about fifty yards from us. In his grey dress and stillness he was hardly distinguishable from the stone he sat on. On his knees was a portfolio, and guessing that he was a journalist we approached. It was Otto Gunther, artist for the Illustrierte Zeitung, HE SAID HE WAS ASSIGNED A PLACE AT THE KING'S HEADQUARTERS, AND HAD BEEN MAKING SKETCHES ALL DAY. HE HAD NOTICED US. HE SPOKE BUT LITTLE ENGLISH, BUT I KNEW ENOUGH GERMAN TO PERCEIVE THAT HE WAS AN INTERESTING MAN. HE PROMPTLY SOLVED OUR PERSONAL PROBLEMS BY SAYING THAT IN GERSA HE HAD A ROOM WITH TWO LARGE BEDS, AND WOULD BE GLAD TO HAVE US SHARE IT. ON OUR WAY WE PASSED MANY DEAD BODIES, AND ON THE GROUND WERE STREWN MANY KNAPSACKS AND WEAPONS from which each of us took a French sword, kept by the commander's consent as a souvenir of that tragical 18th of August, 1870, for Germans will use no sword that has been raised against their country. The house to which we were assigned was the largest in Goerze. It belonged to the leading citizen, an intelligent notary, who with his attractive wife received us amicably, and provided an excellent supper. They held their house under orders— and no doubt hoped their burden would be restricted to us three civilians. Since my arrival in France I had not enjoyed any conversation so much as that of our attractive hosts, over cigars and coffee. It was, however, necessary that we should write our letters, and three tables were provided for us in our grand room, just above the room opening on the street, which it overlooked. Here Otto Gunter showed us the picture he had made that day for his paper, It represented the king and his entire field-cabinet on their horses, and the entourage. It was a fine drawing, and I wanted it. He had to send it off early in the morning, and expressed his regret that he could not gratify me. But what would remunerate you, Herr Gunther, for making another copy for the illustrierte Zeitung, and letting me have this? I should have to charge you fifty thalers. I will pay it and that night till three Otto Gunther sat up copying the picture whose original is now before me. But indeed there was little sleep for either of us that night. Between twelve and one began noises in front of the house, and leaning out of our window I beheld a ghastly scene. A bright full moon lit up the blood-stained features of many wounded men, and had it not been that Gunther, in addition to his special assignment from the King's cabinet, had accommodated us— authorized correspondence. His room would probably have been taken for the wounded. Going downstairs to find if I could be of any assistance to our gentle host and hostess, I was told by the German surgeon that their aid was ample. But oh, the pity of it! There were the lovely lady and her eighteen-year-old daughter wiping blood from the wounded bodies, half of them their countrymen. At dinner the ladies had been able to smile, but now all smiles were gone out. Their ashen faces and starting eyes were as if some engine of torture were sprung upon them. Leaning out of our window I beheld the whole street filled with ambulances, and at every door the horrors borne into homes whose quiet beauty had charmed me in the morning. After our literally sleepless night the rosy dawn greeted us with a smile that seemed mockery, and in our pretty garden the flowers were blooming and the birds singing— Even amid the frightful surroundings, madame did not fail to give us an excellent breakfast. We decided that for once we must disobey Bismarck's warning not to offer any money for our entertainment. But our hostess shook her head, and could hardly be persuaded to receive our contribution for the sufferers in the village. Presently, as we were leaving, I heard her say to a German officer, with a flash of her eyes, "'We cannot receive money from Prussians.' She had recognized my look of sympathy— and in parting expressed the hope that some day I might visit them in peaceful times. Another thing to be remembered. As we passed through the front room it was crowded with wounded men, several of them conversing with each other, Prussians with Frenchmen, in friendly tones. I thought of the song of Jeannette to her soldier lover. All the world should be at peace, and if kings must show their might, I'd have the ones who make their quarrels be the only ones to fight." Returning to the field where we had stood the day before, I picked up a large number of letters scattered from torn knapsacks. Near one fine-looking German who lay dead was his diary, in which were verses full of devotion to his fatherland. There were also some pathetic sentences. I tremble when in the face of death, for it is hard to become a mere part of the soil of a foreign land. We are all brothers marching perhaps not to return— but we shall at last be happy together. Most of the letters were from French wives and mothers giving tender details about the little ones, and their messages to Papa, and some were from sweethearts. They were all affecting. I afterwards sent them in a package to the French government. While strolling across the field a bullet sang close to my head, and I perceived that it came from a German who was collecting weapons scattered about the field. He fired off every rifle before pitching it into his wagon, and when I went to suggest it were well enough to be cautious, he appeared to be surprised at my thinking that any one man's life of such importance. We passed through several of the little villages along the beautiful high-road to Metz, for the possession of which the battles of August 16, 17, and 18 had been fought. Houses were still burning in several of them, and of poor little Flavigny— Only a few blackened walls remained. It was pitiful to see the villagers there, the aged and demoiselles near their burnt houses. I spoke to two young girls, pretty enough to have been village belles. One of them had in her apron a little rice, scraped from the ground. All she and her sister now possessed save the clothes, little enough, then on them. Ah, mon Dieu, mon Dieu! One of them exclaimed, "'What shall we do?' "'Do you live here?' I asked. "'We did live in the house at the corner there,' pointing to some blackened walls, the interior of which was just sinking to ashes. "'Now all we had is burnt up. Our friends have all run away, and we know not where they have gone. All last night we lay on the ground in the field out there.' They then sat down on the side of the street and wept. "'Here is some bread.' said a rough German soldier, drawing his whole ration from his haversack. Moving on towards Gravelotte, thirst tempted me to descend a precipitous bank where there was a spring. But other thirsty souls had preceded me, and it was difficult to ascend the slippery path. Just then the handle of a cane was extended to me, and I came up to find the famous correspondent Archibald Forbes. He had not reached the place in time to witness the battle of Gravelotte, because of the incompetency of the horse he had somewhere bought, and which he was still leading rather than riding. We three walked together to Gravelotte. in our ascent to which we had to pick our way to avoid treading on the dead. The gardens were open sepulchres. We came at times on points where there had been struggles for the possession of some gun. The corpses were massed together. Beyond Gravelotte, we came to a deep ravine where there had been a cavalry charge— for a hundred yards it was a grave of Germans and their horses. The King and his generals were moving about the fields, and we had opportunity to converse with Sheridan, an old friend of Halstad. He said, "'The Prussians are winning, but it costs them dear.' Raisonvie, being the centre of the Red Cross organisation, suffered less than the other villages. There we entered a restaurant to try and get something to eat. We did not succeed but through an open back door I saw three grand officers enjoying a repast of fat bacon, black bread, and claret. We had learned from Sheridan that headquarters would return that night to Pont-à-Mousson. That was the only route by which I might hope to reach home. Not only had I seen enough of war, but on the first Sunday in September my chapel would open. After a good supper at Gers, we started on foot for Pont-à-Mousson. It was not a pleasant prospect to walk the twelve miles of that road all night. Should we encounter another company of French peasants we might not escape as we did at pont Amousson Castle. A French peasant, with an empty voiture drawn by a fagged-out horse, was appealed to, and he said he was going only five miles of our way. But once in, gold did the rest. The weariness of the poor horse, which we relieved at every hell, did not weigh against the safety of being in charge of a French peasant." but the pace was very slow, and as we neared the town we could hardly move because of the enormous number of ambulances. When we entered in the small hours of the morning the scene was frightful. Moaning Germans with fearful wounds swarmed in the streets, entreating to be carried to their homes. The large square was an open-air hospital, where women were nursing the soldiers in their agony. The excitement of the French in pont Amousson was tremendous— I saw a crowd of French people, peasants, bourgeois, women of all degrees, bareheaded and in deshabille, following a wagon in which were four grievously wounded French officers. On the front seat sat upright and stately General Latour, on his face an expression of self-respect, mastering the agony of his head-wound. When the wagon stopped, the street was blocked by the French and many wounded Prussian soldiers. The women rushed out of the houses, with wine and other delicacies hitherto hidden away, and the wounded Prussians began to grow angry. The French kissed the general's hand again and again. At the windows, women and children were weeping and calling out with expressions of enthusiastic devotion. No attempt at repressing these demonstrations was made by the Germans, but one thing startled me. When the wagon stopped, the French general hastily took from his pocket a large package and handed it to a woman without a word. The woman vanished with it. Before leaving pont Amousson, I went to take leave of the Frenchman and his wife who had been kind to me. Ah! said the man with tears, this has long been the most beautiful town on the Moselle, and the happiest. You see what it is now. For many years it will be a picture of war. But if it be still standing when peace comes, come hither again, and we shall take our coffee and cigars together, and talk of many things. For me, for my wife there, our lips are now sealed. We know not who is friend, who foe, but we know how to do well by strangers, and shall not forget those who spoke to us in kind tones during this frightful week. On our homeward journey we found at Remilly ghastly crowds of wounded Germans who had straggled seven or eight miles to this nearest station— hoping for places on the home-bound trains. It was here a contest between the claims of war and the cries of humanity, in which, of course, war had its way. Along this road thousands of fresh soldiers were still pouring into France, and provisions for them, and only now and then could a train be got with its groaning freight the other way. The scenes of agony at the stations on our road to Saarbrücken were heartbreaking but the ministrations of mercy were heart-restoring. Everywhere were tables covered with viands, delicacies, cooling drinks, freely given to all sufferers. Physicians, among them several English surgeons, were kneeling with anxious devotion by every couch of straw, and large numbers of refined young women were bathing and bandaging naked bodies, and performing repulsive services with the gracious dignity of madonnas. It was only with great difficulty that we made our way to the German frontier, Saarbrücken. The only train going that day was so crammed with the wounded that we could not ask places on it as travellers. But having provisions and cigars and wine, we offered ourselves as nurses, and to give what we had to the wounded. This being found impracticable, we got behind the train as it was starting and climbed to the top of it. "'The bridges are low, it will knock you off!' shouted an official who caught sight of us. But it was too late. The front edge of the car-roof was flattened enough for seats, and there was no difficulty in lying on our backs to escape the bridges, so long as daylight lasted. But the cars started in the late afternoon, and two-thirds of our ten hours were passed in the thick darkness and chilling mist. So we had to lie flat and keep awake. It was after two o'clock in the night when we reached Sauerbrücken. Numb with cold and painfully sleepy, we left the station to find a place to sleep, but the town was dark and silent. After much wandering we perceived a glimmer at one window, and though the house was small and repulsive we knocked at the door. It was opened by a surly old man who did not ask what we wanted, but silently pointed to a back door. Just as silently we went to that door, and entered a large bare room whose floor was covered with sleeping men. There were neither pallets nor pillows. All lay on straw in their clothes, and we were joyful in finding a corner in which we could enjoy this experience in equality and fraternity. We waked to a beautiful Sunday morning and started on the great military train for Trèves. But, alas, the terrors and pangs of war were not left behind. The train halted long at every station— each crowded with the inhabitants, chiefly women and children, pressing to hear tidings from their husbands, sons, brothers, fathers who were in the war. We were creeping along the road, distributing wounded and dying men to their once happy homes, and dropping heavy tidings, answered with shrieks, till it seemed as if our wheels were crushing human hearts. Before our train could come to a stand in any place, women were clinging to its side, darkening every window with haggard faces, fiercely demanding, Where is he? The fatal tidings might be conveyed by silence, hesitation, tears, but shriek after shriek all along the train told how many hearts were pierced. So far reaches every bullet. At times I was sick and faint. The earth yawned into one vast grave. The blue sky was a pall the sun had turned to blood. The railway-bridges having been burned, we journeyed by voiture from Treve to Luxembourg. It seemed shocking to find the people happy and peaceful, sipping their wine, playing écarté or billiards, talking of the war as if it were a big game of chess. On conversing with some at Luxembourg, I perceived that they were on the side that was to win, whichever that should prove. At Brussels I met a gentleman, who had been at Chalons when the Emperor arrived there after his escape from Metz. As he passed along, the soldiers of the Garde Mobile darted from their ranks and cried, "'Assassin!' The Emperor passed, with indescribable misery in his face, grasping the hand of the little prince imperial, who was trembling and weeping. One of the most interesting things in Europe is the Wirtz Museum in Brussels, and the most powerful picture in it is that of Bonaparte in Hell. On the large canvas the famous Corsican, with darkened countenance and starting eyes, moves through a fiery gulf whose surging waves on each side take the forms of ghastly, fleshless women, with outstretched arms holding out the bones of the husbands and sons slain in his wars. After witnessing the Battle of Gravelotte, and the continuous moans and wailings on our homeward journey, this picture engraved itself upon me with the added pigments of my month on the battlefields, in a way ineffaceable. Halstead went on to Paris. I reached the night-boat at Ostend, and on Monday morning was in London. No paper contained any news about Gravelotte. Having cabled my letter, the last— to the New York World, I went to the offices of the Daily News and wrote a description of the great battle which was telegraphed throughout Europe, and translated into all languages. It occupies ten pages in the first volume of the War Correspondence of the Daily News, 1870. Pages 63 to 73. For several weeks after reaching home, my dreams were haunted by the dreadful scenes I had witnessed on the battlefields. End of chapter 39 Part 2